The following is a presentation of the Open Door Bible Baptist Church and Pastor Chris Tice. For more audio and video content, please check us out on the web at www.opendoornj.org. As we look at the opening to uh, the chapter here, we find Jesus once again uh, with a, a group of people who the Pharisees were not approving of. Uh, notice uh, the Bible says here that uh, uh, they, were, they were murmuring against him because Jesus uh, 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 was there. And notice verse 1, drew near unto him all the publicans and sinners for to hear him. You know, it's kind of significant that Jesus attracted sinners while the Pharisees repelled sinners. And uh, what does that say uh, somewhat about us as God's church today? You know, lost sinners came to Jesus not because he catered uh, to their sin, not because he compromised with them about sin, but because he cared for them. That's why they came to him, because he literally cared for them. He cared for their life. Uh, they They didn't come to him because he was making excuses for them and uh, uh, saying that it was okay the way that they were living. He literally just cared for them. He loved them, and so they were drawn uh, to him. He, he understood their needs, and, and he sought to help them with what their needs were. And while uh, the Pharisees criticized and kept their distance, Jesus is seen here once again uh, as Pharisees and sinners, are, are, as, as, uh, as publicans and sinners are drawing near, and they want to hear what Jesus has to say. Notice the religious crowd here, the Pharisees didn't want to hear Jesus. But these Pharisees, these publicans and sinners wanted to hear Jesus. The Pharisees had a knowledge of the Old Testament law, and they had a desire for personal purity, but they had no heart or love for lost souls. That was the problem. They didn't care for anyone else. They only cared for themselves. And, and uh, three words kind of summarize the message of this chapter, and we're going to look at uh, these three things tonight. And uh, uh, the words lost, found, and rejoice, we can see over and over again uh, as Jesus gives these three parables. And we're going to look at this, but this chapter makes it clear that there's one message of salvation. There's, there's not multiple ways of salvation. There's only one message of salvation. And here's, here's the, the underlying truth. God welcomes and forgives repentant sinners. God welcomes and He forgives uh, repentant sinners. Uh, uh, there's two aspects to salvation that we can see just very clear in, in, in this story. And there's the first part, which is God's part. And when we, when we think about that salvation, the shepherd seeks the lost sheep, the woman searches for the lost coin. So we see God's part, if you would. There's the seeking, there's the searching. But then we also see man's part because in Jesus' uh, 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 parables here, uh, there's the wayward son that willingly repented and responded and, and came home. And uh, uh, so there's, there's a response of man, not just uh, God's doing and God's working, but it does, uh, does uh, kind of hinge on man's response to what uh, God has done. And, and uh, to emphasize one aspect of salvation over another is to kind, of, uh, to kind of undermine God's message of salvation. In other words, I can't just say it's all God and I can't just say it's all man uh, as a matter of fact, I have to understand that there's two aspects to this. There's, there's God and His sovereignty, but there's, there's man and His responsibility. And that's His response to what God's done, His response to the message, His response to uh, uh, the teachings, if you would. And, and the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man are seen both in salvation. And, and sometimes uh, people uh, focus on one over the other, but you can't ignore the fact that they're both there. 
and both necessary. And so we're going to look at three things tonight. The first word I want to focus on is finding. Finding. And if you're following along in your outline there, you can just write that in that first part. But here in the first 10 verses, he gives the first two parables. And the story about the lost sheep, uh, if you think about it, as Jesus is speaking to a crowd, these publicans and sinners are drawing near to him for to hear him. Uh, uh, in this crowd, there's probably men and women, boys and girls, different various uh, degrees, ages uh, of people that are coming and gathering near him. And, and notice Jesus is telling this, uh, this parable of the sheep, and, and I, I dare say this would touch the he- uh, hearts of the men and the boys in the crowd. But uh, think about the other parable. The woman and the girls would have appreciated the story about uh, the coin that was lost from that wedding necklace. And uh, Jesus is trying to reach and, and, and to talk to everybody's heart. And that's what Jesus' desire uh, is. And whenever he spoke, he wanted to care for each person that was there that was listening. And the first parable that he gives here is the lost sheep, the lost sheep. And the sheep was lost because of its foolishness. Look at verse number uh, 3, and he spake uh, this parable unto them, saying, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he lose one of them, doth not leave the ninety and nine in the wilderness, and go after that which is lost until he find it? Why is the sheep lost? The sheep is lost because the sheep wandered. The sheep is lost because the sheep went away from where he was supposed to be. Notice, uh, not all the sheep are lost, so we're not getting the sense that the shepherd is careless. The shepherd's not careless in this situation. Uh, The sheep is the one that wandered. And so uh, the sheep was lost because of its own foolishness. And and sheep have a tendency to go astray, don't they? And that's why they need a shepherd. It's interesting when you uh, think about sheep, uh, uh, they have this duality of nature. They see 15 feet in front of themselves. They uh, follow. They follow what's in front of them. They're a herding kind of breed. And so uh, you can keep them together by helping them to see what's in front of them and following that other sheep that's in front of them. But they also have this nature that's contrary to that nature. Wherein they have a nature to follow, they also have a nature to wander, which goes against their nature to follow. And you think about us, God likens us to sheep. We have the duality of that same nature. We have, we have a desire in us to follow. As Christians, uh, we have this new nature that God's given us, and we want to follow Christ, and we want to follow His Word, and we want to follow His teachings, and we know that He's leading us beside the still waters. We know that He's leading us to green pastures to feed us, and we know that we have a loving, merciful, caring shepherd who cares for us, but yet in us is still this desire to wander away from Him, to, uh, to go astray, if you would. And all of us, we struggle with this, don't we? Because as, we, as much as we know we should follow, we still have this nature in us, this flesh, that we still have this, this second nature that's here that wars against the first nature that God has given us, and, and it, it goes contrary uh, to it. And the scribes and the Pharisees here in, in this story that Jesus is telling have no problem with seeing the, the publicans and sinners as being lost sheep, but they wouldn't apply this truth to themselves. And, and uh, here... Jesus is, is teaching, and he's, he's encompassing all people, and they're having a problem with Jesus' application to them. And, them, and then him saying that, uh, that this applies to them. But think about this. Isaiah even said uh, in his passage, all we, like sheep, have gone astray. And that was uh, uh, Isaiah, the prophet, had, had told them that. And the, the shepherd is responsible for each individual sheep, isn't he? If uh, one was missing... Uh, it would have been the shepherd's responsibility to pay for that sheep unless he could prove that it was eaten by a predator. And uh, listen, if you think about the fact 
that the shepherd leaves the 90 and 9. The shepherd was not saying that they were unimportant to him, but he was saying that he needed to go after the one sheep that was in danger because those sheep were safe. And there was one that was in danger. And we see that Jesus cares for each individual sheep. Aren't you glad that God loves the world, but I'm glad that God loves me. Uh, I'm thankful for, if you would, his universal love uh, for all, but I'm I'm thankful for his personal love for me. I'm thankful that he died for sinners, but I'm thankful that he died for me. Uh, I'm thankful that uh, he, he is the Savior, if you would, of the world and all that would call upon him, but I'm thankful tonight that he's my Savior. I'm thankful that he is the God, but I'm thankful that he is my God. Are you with me tonight? And so there's a personal connection that we have that God shows us again and again that he cares individually for all of us. And uh, there's, uh, there's really this joy. When, when, uh, when the shepherd finds the sheep, there's a joy, an overwhelming joy. There's a fourfold joy expressed when a lost sinner comes to the Savior. You think about it. There's nothing said in the story how the sheep felt. There's certainly joy in the heart of the person found, but there's joy in the person who does the finding. You think about this, Jesus is the shepherd, and it brings him joy when he finds lost sheep. You think about the fact that not only is it great that we've been found, but the fact that Jesus Christ is joyful because he's found us. And I don't know about you tonight, but I sometimes am perplexed why God would be glad that he found me. Uh, and uh, of all the things to find. But here, uh, his love and his care, he, he found us. And you say, yeah, I'm, I'm perplexed why he would be grateful to find you too, Pastor. But, you know, for me, he found me. I can understand why he's joyful about that. But, you know, so, sometimes we, we, we kind of focus more on the sheep than the shepherd. But here Jesus is talking about the feeling, the joy of the shepherd here. And that the shepherd is joyful in his finding. And notice what he says in verse number 10. He says, he says, I say unto you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner uh, that repentance, uh, repents. And so we see the lost sheep. And the, the second parable that he gives is the, the parable of the lost coin. The lost coin. The sheep was lost because of its foolishness, but the coin was lost because of the carelessness of another. The coin wasn't foolish. The coin didn't lose itself. The, if you would, the, the caretaker of the coin lost the coin. You know, it's kind of a sobering thought that our carelessness at home, our carelessness in our responsibilities could result in a soul being lost. That our carelessness could be a result of, of, the, of, of people being lost. As uh, we think about our responsibility to care for the lost and our responsibility uh, to love the lost and our responsibility to be witnesses to the lost that are around us and our responsibility to be light and salt. And that's a heavy responsibility, isn't it? But the Bible is, is, gives us a very sobering thought about our carelessness causes, if you would, lostness. It could cause someone to go wayward. It could cause someone uh, to be lost. And, and boy, as we're reminded over and over again, uh, uh, that uh, there's so many that are lost around us, and sometimes we can be very careless. We can be without care for those uh, that are around us. Think about it. When, when a lost sinner is found, God rejoices. I wonder if we could come out of our, our, our personal bubbles for, for uh, a, a time and, and find the ability to rejoice over someone, someone else being found. Not just the fact that we've been found, but someone else has been found, and and these two parables help us to give us an understanding of what it means to be lost. 
Uh, when, it, when it comes to being lost, the word lost means to be out of place, to be not in the place that you should be. And to begin with, you know, when we think about the sheep belong with the flock. The coin belongs on the chain. Uh, but uh, the lost sinners, if you think about us, we belong in fellowship with God. What, what happened because of sin? We got out of fellowship with God. We're lost because we're not where we belong. So if we look at people and say, they're lost because they're not where they belong. They belong with God. God made them. He's their creator. He is their God, whether they recognize him to be God. And the truth is, is that there is only one creator God. There's only one God in heaven. And and here, uh, God loves them. He cares for them. He wants to restore them. He's seeking to save them. And notice uh, some people are not even acknowledging or, or recognizing the fact that they're out of place, that they're not where they belong. Anyone not in fellowship with God is lost. They belong in fellowship with God. Even a Christian gets lost sometimes. I'm not talking about lost in a sense of the eternality of their soul. I'm talking about lost in a sense of not where they're supposed to be, out of place. See, we're the sheep, we're in the fold, and sometimes we wander. We're uh, the son, if you would, and sometimes we go prodigal. Sometimes we don't, uh, we're not where we should be. So not only does lost mean being out of place, but lost also means being out of service. Being out of service. A lost sheep is of no value to the shepherd. A lost coin has no value to the owner. A lost sinner cannot experience the enriching fulfillment that God has for them in Jesus Christ. But to turn this all around, to be found... Uh, Think about the meaning of that. To be found means to be saved. It means that you're back in place where you belong. It means that you've been reconciled unto God. It means you're back in service, if you would. Have you ever been out of service? You should be back in service as a Christian. You know, uh, have you ever gone up to something, you, you go to use it, and you see that little light, that depressing light when you have a need? Uh, you go to the vending machine, and it says, out of service. Um, I went to an ATM the other night, and it says, uh, uh, you cannot take cash out of this ATM. And I thought, boy, what a purposeless unit. I can't take cash. And then, I, and then I, I went to do this. I went to make a deposit. And it said, you cannot deposit anything. And I said, what is the point of this thing then? I can't take anything out and I can't put anything in. And uh, boy, you thought, I thought if, if they wouldn't let me take anything out, at least they would let me put something in. Uh, but they wouldn't let me do either. And I thought, this is pointless. There's no point to this. And boy, uh, it's pointless in a person's lives when they're not where they're supposed to be and, and they're not in service. They're not doing uh, what their function, their original design calls for, and uh, they're in danger of being deleted, omitted, replaced, uh, uh, put, uh, put aside uh, uh, re- you know, when, when we don't allow ourselves to be back into service. No wonder the shepherd and the woman rejoiced and invited their friends uh, to rejoice with them. I mean, it's easy for us to kind of read these two parables and take their message for granted today. But the people who first heard them must have been shocked because here's the truth that Jesus was conveying. Jesus was saying that God actually searches for lost sinners. Not about you, but that's an amazing thought. That's an amazing truth. Jesus is revealing to these people that God searches for sinners. And this is a truth that they needed to hear because when Jesus said, I've come to seek and to save that which was lost, Jesus was saying, hey, 
I'm the Father, if you would. I'm God. I'm, I'm the one you need, you need to recognize here. You need to understand here. Uh, I'm God, and I'm seeking to save, and I want to save, and I want to restore. And no wonder the scribes and the Pharisees were offended because there was no place in their legalistic theology for a God that was like that, a God that would seek out sinners. Because in their theology, God only looked for good people. God only looked for performances. God only looked for righteous acting and and deeds. God is not, uh, 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 if you would, uh, He doesn't need our works. It's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy, He doesn't need our works. Our works accomplish nothing when it comes to salvation. I think the Bible is very clear on that. Uh, It's by grace that we're saved through faith. And, And really here, the scribes and the Pharisees forgot that God was like a father who pitied his wayward children uh, because they were scattered abroad, as sheep having no shepherd, and Jesus wanted to brood them in, Jesus wanted to gather them in, but the Bible says they would not. So we see the, the problem here was not that Jesus wouldn't save, the problem is they wouldn't respond to his salvation plan. They wouldn't uh, obey and receive uh, that which Jesus was uh, trying to do. And there's a few joys that match the joy of finding the lost, and bringing them to the Savior. Um, John Wesley made this statement. He says, the church has nothing to do but to save souls. He says, that is the, that is the function uh, of a church. Therefore, he said, spend and be spent for this single work. To, to save souls. Nothing to do but to save souls. That's our job. Uh, and uh, sometimes it's amazing how uh, Christians can't find something to do. Uh, Look at the world. Lift up your eyes. Look on the fields. They're white unto harvest. Uh, If we would just do uh, as God has commanded us to do. Not only do we uh, see finding, but number two, we want to see returning tonight. Returning. Returning. If you look at verses 11 through 24, Jesus begins the third parable that's here in the passage. He talks about the lost sheep and the lost coin, and then he begins to talk about the lost son, the prodigal son. And uh, we call this story the parable of the prodigal son. The word prodigal means wasteful. Um, But it could also really be called the parable of the loving father. Sometimes we focus on the son when we should focus on the father. Because really the truth is, is this parable really reveals to us the graciousness, graciousness of the father more than it reveals to us the sinfulness of the son. It shows us more about the steadfastness, the mercy, the love, the care of the Father than it does the wastefulness and the riotous living of the Son. The emphasis here is on the Father, and unlike the shepherd and the woman in the previous parables, the Father doesn't go out to seek the Son. But it was the memory of His Father's goodness that brought the boy to repentance and forgiveness. You think about this. The the Bible says that godly sorrow worketh repentance. But the Bible also tells us that the goodness of God leadeth us, leadeth us to repentance. In this case, in the case of the prodigal, this prodigal son was led to repentance because of the goodness of the father, because of his memory of how good his father was or is. And we see uh, kind of three experiences that this younger son goes through, this prodigal goes through, and the first one is rebellion. He went to the far country. The Bible tells us in verse number 13, and not many days after, the younger son gathered all together and took his journey into a far country, and there wasted his substance 
with riotous living. Uh, to think about uh, this inheritance and, and, and why someone would be so bold as to ask his inheritance, if you think about Jewish law, the elder son received twice as much as the other sons. So the elder son was entitled to twice as much anyway as, as the younger son, and a father could distribute his wealth during his lifetime if he wished. He didn't have to wait till his death to distribute his wealth. It was perfectly legal for the younger son to ask for his share and even to sell it, but it certainly wasn't loving. It was legal, but it wasn't loving. And here we, we understand, if you would, Jesus' depiction now of the Pharisees. Legal, but not loving. Desirous to do what they're allowed to do, but not considering the factor of love uh, in this picture. Uh, We're always heading for trouble when we value things more than we value people. When we value pleasure more than duty. When we uh, look at distant scenes uh, uh, around us more than the blessings that we have right in front of us. Uh, that whole uh, grass is greener on the other side uh, scenario. Uh, come on, we struggle with that. Uh, we look to the other side. We think that it's better. We, we even uh, are drawn to it, if you would, and sometimes it causes us not to appreciate what we have and even think, we sometimes even think that there's more over there than what we even have. And Jesus once warned two disputing brothers in Luke chapter 12. He said, take heed and beware of covetousness. Why? Because... A covetous person is never satisfied, never. doesn't matter what they get, what they receive. The prodigal was not happy about getting his inheritance. If he understood and appreciated what he received, he would have never wasted it. Uh, His response to what he got reveals his taking for granted of what he had. Uh, He, on the other side, uh, figured out that what he had at home was better than what he thought he was going to get in the far country. And uh, we can never be satisfied when we're covetous. No matter how much we require, uh, no matter how much we acquire, uh, a dissatisfied heart leads to a disappointed life. Um, Paul said this, I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. And boy, that's a good lesson for all of us to learn, isn't it? In whatsoever state we're in therewith to be content. The prodigal learned the hard way that you cannot enjoy the things money can buy if you ignore the things money cannot buy. That's what happened, wasn't it? He ignored what could not be bought. His relationship with the Father, a loving Father at home, what he had, he could never buy. No money could buy what he had. And boy, there's people that are in this world that would long to have what he had, but could not buy it. There's rich people in this world that would love to have a, a loving relationship with a father would love to have a relationship the way that he had the relationship. And money cannot buy these things. And when we take for granted what money cannot buy, we won't handle our money correctly either. The far country, when we think about it, is is introduced to us in verse number 13, is not necessarily a distant place to which we travel because the far country, truthfully tonight, exists in all of our hearts. It exists within us. Because that is, if you would, the duality of the nature that we spoke of when it came to the lost sheep. In us is this desire, if you would, to go to the far country. And the truth is, you can go to the far country while you sit in a church pew. You can go to the far country while you're at home. You can go to the far country while you're, if you would, about if 
you would physically in the places where you should be. Come on, all of us have been in the right place physically in the wrong place in our minds and in our hearts. Before I ever go to the wrong place physically, I always go there in my heart and my mind. Boy, isn't it important as the Proverbs tell us to keep our heart with all diligence for out of it are the issues of life. We understand there's an attack today. Hey, listen, uh, God calls us in his, in his word to cast down wicked imaginations, to bring into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. And, and boy, it's so difficult because the world that we live in uh, calls us to think the way they think and act the way they act and respond the way that re, uh, they respond. It's a dog-eat-dog, climb-the-ladder, step on as many people as you can on the way up, laughing as you go. That's the world that we live in, and we've, if you would, uh, kind of uh, allowed that, excused that, and sometimes that behavior uh, uh, creeps up into our lives, and we look to, if you would, the world, and we think, boy, it looks like they're having fun. The party is going on, and they're just enjoying life over there, and I'm miserable here. And it calls, doesn't it? The far country calls. It doesn't call from without us. It calls from within us. We would like to blame outward sources for our temptation. But the truth is that most of our temptation comes from in our hearts. It comes from what's within us, what's inside of us. And a lot of times we say, well, I'd like to, you know, this, is, this lust is because of these out. No, no, it's because of our hearts. It's because of what's in our hearts. And we've got to be transformed, if you would, by the renewing of our minds, that we may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God Notice what follows, if you would, this rebellion. This, this young man goes into the far country. The younger son dreamed of enjoying his freedom far from home, away from his father, away from his family. If the sheep was lost through foolishness and the coin was lost through carelessness, then the son was lost because of willfulness, because he chose to be lost. He wanted to have his own way. So he rebelled against his father, and he he broke his father's heart. But life in the far country is never what we expect it to be, is it? It's never what we think it's going to be. His resources ran out. His friends left him. A a famine came. The boy was forced to do for a stranger what what he could not do for his own father, go to work. I mean, he needed his father's inheritance because he didn't work a job. He wasn't even working at home, let alone having to work in the far country. And the scene in the drama is really our Lord's way of emphasizing what sin really does in the heart of a person that rejects the father's will, that rejects God's will for their life. When we reject the will of God, we only have our will left. And our will is going to lead us to destruction. Our will is going to self-destruct and implode on itself. And and really, sin promises freedom, but it only brings slavery, John 8, 34. It promises success, but it brings failure. It promises life, but the wages of sin, Romans 6, 23, is death. What sin always pays out, what it always deals out, on payday, when the paycheck arrives, what sin always delivers is death. It's, it's, it's the payment. It's the price, if you would. The boy thought he would find himself, but he only lost himself. And he had to come to himself, didn't he? And here, uh, rebellion is followed by number two. We see him go to this next step, and that is repentance. Look at uh, verse number 17. The Bible tells us, as he's 
eating what the swine eat, as he's feeding the pigs, he came to himself. A lot of people would think that it would be unloving for God to allow one of his children to be in this position. But I would submit to you that this was the most most loving thing that the father could do. The most loving thing that God could do would be allow him to come to himself. Sometimes we want God to bail people out of their sinful situations when God is just saying, hey, listen, when they come to themselves, when they understand where this leads, when they finally realize it and want it for themselves, restoration, repentance is going to follow. Don't try to fast track what God's doing in the heart of a sinner. A lot of times we think, you know, uh, I wish they just kind of just get right today and they get, listen, even as a pastor, as, as, as I understand, I understand his people come in. I, I, would, I would like to think that uh, hearing a message that people are going to respond and repent. But what I do understand is that some people are going to hear the truth. They're not going to really apply it to themselves. They may not respond in repentance, but here's the truth. One day they may hear that word of God somewhere in the back of the head that was taught, and when they come to themselves, they'll realize, I can't believe what I left. I can't believe what I took for granted. I can't believe what I traded off for. Because it's a bad deal, isn't it? It's a bad trade. Because the devil always is buy now, pay later, isn't it? And even in our society, uh, financially and physically, we understand buy now, pay later is a bad deal. It's a bad deal for us personally. It's a bad deal for our country. Buy now, pay later is no good. For the Lord, we understand it's paid for already. And here's the truth. Although we may pay now, we're going to enjoy later, aren't we? We understand as we work and we labor and we, if you would, cast off the unfruitful works of darkness and and we do the will of God rather than do our own will, it may be difficult, it may be trying, uh, there may be tribulation that works patience in our lives, there may be fiery trials that are to try us, but the truth is tonight, we know it's going to pay off, isn't it? And at the judgment seat of Christ, when we stand before the Lord and hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant, boy, that's a good payday, isn't it? That's going to be a wonderful thing. Sin promises freedom, but it brings slavery. It promises success, brings failure. promises life, but brings death. The boy thought he would find himself, but he lost himself. Repentance, he came to himself. To repent means to change one's mind, and that's exactly what the young man did as he cared for the pigs. What a job for a Jewish boy. Tending to pigs. Unclean. Boy, he was unclean, wasn't he? What a job. He came to himself. It suggests that up to this point, he had not really been himself. You ever look at someone who's walked away from the Lord? They're not themselves, are they? They're a shell of what they were. As a matter of fact, behind the eyes, there's not much. As far as the countenance is concerned, there may be a smile on their face as they enjoy, if you would, the pleasures of sin, but in their heart, and behind, if you would, the outward, there's the countenance that's fallen. There's an emptiness. There's, if you would, a, a lack of satisfaction for what they're finding, what they thought would, would, would satisfy isn't satisfying. There's literally an insanity in sin, isn't there? An insanity in sin that seems to paralyze the image of God within us 
and liberate the animal inside of us. You know, uh, when we think about the danger of allowing ourselves to do as we want, and boy, as, as a Christian tonight, I, I'm, uh, uh, I am uh, just convicted about the fact that within me is still the ability to commit the vilest of all sin, within all of us. This fact that we're Christians doesn't change the fact that we still can sin and do. Christians have done terrible things, horrible things. And uh, this young man changed his mind about himself. He changes his mind about his situation. He admits he's a sinner. Listen, until someone is ready to do that, they're not ready to repent. Listen, uh, no amount of excusing what I've done. Well, I just kind of went the wrong way and, you know, I didn't. No, no, you sinned. The best thing a person can do is say, I've sinned. I've done wrong. That's the only key, if you would, to repentance. He confessed with his father. Notice his father here, he admits, is a generous man. He admits here, he says he's generous, uh, uh, that uh, if you would, uh, uh, at home... There's more freedom than there, are, than there is here in the far country. Notice he, when he changes his mind, he looks back home and says, I'd have more freedom at home. Interesting, if you raise children, they've all looked outside the walls and thought there was more freedom out there. But many of you as parents who have come to Christ and understand that there's only bondage out there. There's only slavery out there. As Christians, boy, let us be reminded if we have been given the privilege of raising children to the glory of God to let them not go out there, to warn them about what is out there. If the boy had thought only about himself, if he'd only thought about his hunger, his homesickness, his loneliness, he would have been depressed, he would have been despaired. What caused him to be lifted up? It was when he stopped thinking about himself and he started thinking about his father. See, that's when the goodness of God leads us to repentance, when we stop thinking about ourselves. See, a lot of times that's what happens, isn't it? We don't get led to repentance. We don't change because we're so selfishly looking at our own situation, feeling sorry for ourselves, saying, I don't deserve to be here. The truth is we don't deserve to breathe. And we are here. And God has allowed where we are to bring us to Himself and to think about how good He is. And, and when we stop thinking about ourselves and we start thinking about Him, boy, we've taken the first step toward home. We've realized where we are and said, I don't want to be here anymore. And you know what the devil does is he says, just think about yourself because thinking about yourself keeps you where you are. But when you think about God, it causes you to get up and leave that place. It's God's goodness, not just man's badness, that leads us to repentance. If the boy had thought only about himself, he would have despaired. His painful circumstances helped him to see his father in a new way, and that brought him hope, didn't it? Boy, when we think about God in the right way, it always brings us hope. If his father was so good to his servants, maybe he would forgive his son. I think he was confident that he would forgive his son. He, Had he stopped there, the boy would have really only experienced regret and remorse. But true repentance involves the will as well as the mind and the emotions. Notice what he says. I will arise. I will go. I will say. 
Notice his resolutions were noble. He thought, what I'm going to do is going to fix it. But he was still wrong, wasn't he? He could not fix, he could not undo what he had done. His resolution here was a great one, but some people make resolutions and never act on their resolutions. Come on, isn't that kind of the joke about the first of the year? We make resolutions, but we don't act on our resolutions. Some people are hearers of the word, but not doers of the word. Uh, sometimes we, we read the word of God and we hear, come on, we, we hear a message or we spend time with God in devotions and, and God speaks to our heart and, and, and then all of a sudden we say, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. And I'm, but until we actually do it, it doesn't change anything. They in of themselves can never bring about permanent good. If repentance is truly the work of God, then the sinner will obey God and put saving faith in Jesus Christ. So we see not only rebellion and repentance, but number three, underneath this boy's experience, we see rejoicing, rejoicing. He came to his father. Notice in verse number 20, and he arose and came to his father. Notice before he came to his father, he had to come to himself. He came to himself and then he came to his father And here Jesus answers the accusations really in in verse number 2 of the scribes and the Pharisees. Notice the Bible says in verse 2, He said unto them. He was talking to them because they were accusing Him. They were murmuring against Him. He was speaking to them directly. And here it is. The Father not only ran to welcome His Son, but He honored the boy's homecoming by preparing a feast and inviting the whole village to attend. The father never did permit the younger son to finish his confession, did he? The boy had it all worked out. Boy, it was a pretty impressive speech, wasn't it? But notice that the boy's confession was interrupted, upstaged by the father's reaction. Here he is, he's, 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 he's kind of grand, grandly speaking, hoping to impress the father with his words. God wasn't impressed with his words. He was glad that he was there. And he said, boy, this is what I'm going to do. Because what you're going to do doesn't matter. What I'm going to do is going to matter here. What did God do? He forgave him. He ordered the celebration to begin. The Father pictures to us the attitude of our Heavenly Father, doesn't it? Towards sinners who repent. He's rich in His mercy and His grace. He's great in His love toward them. You know, all this is possible because of the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, by the way. Because without the sacrifice of Jesus, we'd have no access to the Father. There would be no Father leaping from the porch. There would be no Father waiting on the porch. Jesus is the access. Jesus is the reason. No matter what some preachers and singers claim, We're not saved by God's love. God loves the whole world, and the whole world is not saved. God never said, for by love are you saved. He says you're saved by grace. And grace is love that pays a price. That's what grace is. Love, God loves everybody. Hey, listen, the truth is tonight is we understand we love people. And perhaps you've dealt with a prodigal. 
Perhaps you've been the prodigal. No amount of the love of someone else has ever saved you. But grace surely has, hasn't it? Love that paid the price for you. That's what Jesus Christ has done. He paid the price for us. Here's the interesting fact about the fact that the father ran to the son. In the east, old men do not run, but the father ran to meet the son. Why? Why did he run? Well, one obvious reason, I think, was his love for him and his desire to show him love. But there's something else involved. The, the wayward son had brought disgrace to his family and village, and according to Deuteronomy 21, he should have been stoned to death. If the neighbors had started to stone him, they would have hit the father who was embracing him. What a picture! It was like the father was running to the son so that no one else could get to the son to do anything to the son without his presence and protection. The father got there first before anyone else could receive, respond, could do anything to him. I'm sure there were people around that knew what he did. I'm sure as the elder brother was off in the field and hateful towards his younger brother and what he had done to the father, I'm sure there were other people around that understood the story, that knew the son, that saw him grow up underneath this loving, caring father and saw his son's rebellion and saw what he did and how he hurt the father's heart. I'm sure there were people in the village that watched the father day after day on the porch looking for his son, looking for his son and understood the broken heart of the father, and yet, here's the thing, they would want to pick up stones and kill the son for what he did to the father, just like the Pharisees wanted to, to every sinner that came to Jesus. But notice, whenever a sinner came to Jesus, he ran to them. His response was love, it was mercy, it was compassion, it was grace. Jesus was full of grace and truth. By the way, he's not run out of grace us. Aren't you glad this morning that when you got up, His mercies were new for you? That His grace today had not run out and never will? How deep is God's love for us? Cannot be measured. What is the breadth and the depth and the height? The dimensions of God's love we don't even understand because of the grace of God. Everything the younger son had hoped to find in the far country, get this, he discovered was already back at home. Clothes, jewelry, friends, celebrations, love, assurance for the future. What made the difference? Instead of the son coming and saying to the father, give me, he said, father, make me. It's a big difference, isn't it? Beginning of the story, he says, Give me my inheritance. As he comes back, he says, God, make me your servant. Make me. Just make me one of your hired servants. Boy, when we come to God that way, he that hath begun a good work in us is faithful to complete it. Boy, we need God to make us. Boy, often we our request to God should be, God, thank you for unmaking me and remaking me. God didn't better you. God didn't build on you. What you were, is gone. There's no more you, only what God has made. 
only what God has done. So here's the truth. There's no reason for us to be prideful then. There's no reason for us to think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think. There's no reason for us to to push for position or to desire uh, for some better thing uh, for ourselves because it's not us anymore, is it? It's all Him. He's the one that's made us. And so we looked to Him and say, make me. He was willing to be a servant. We, we asked for God in the beginning, boy, this rebellious son, give me, give me, give me. And boy, sometimes as Christians, that's all our praying, isn't it? Give me, like God is some kind of bailout program or lottery scheme. Oh, the preachers are, 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 are filling the pulpits with the prosperity gospel today. God is the one that's going to give you, give you, give you. No, God is the one that's going to make you. And He's going to make you desire to be made and have a desire to be His servant. The Father didn't ask Him to earn His forgiveness because, think about this, how could the Son ever earn His Father's forgiveness? How many years would He have had to serve to pay Him back for His lifetime inheritance? A lifetime would have never paid Him back. Not his lifetime, nor anybody else's life. The Father's the one who had given. The Father is the one who is giving grace. The Father's the one who is forgiving. In the far country, the prodigal learned the meaning of misery. But back home, he discovered the meaning of mercy. The ring here, he, he puts a ring on his finger. It's a sign of sonship. The best robe, no doubt the Father's, was proof of his acceptance Back into the family, servants did not wear rings, shoes, or expensive garments. The feast was the father's way of showing his joy and sharing it with others. He had the boy, had the boy been dealt with according to the law, there would have been a funeral, not a feast. What a beautiful illustration that God gives us. It's interesting to consider the father's description of his son's experience. Because when we listen to the words of the father, what does he say? He was dead, now is alive. What's he talking about? When his son was there asking for his inheritance, he was dead. When he was in the far country, he was dead. But now he's alive. He was lost, and now he was found. This is a spiritual experience, really, that every lost sinner gets when he comes to the Father through faith in Jesus Christ. Note the parallels, really. Think about the prodigals coming to the Father and our coming to the Father through Jesus Christ. The prodigal, Jesus Christ, he was lost, Jesus said, I'm the way. He was ignorant, Jesus said, I'm the truth. He was dead, Jesus said, I am the life. There's only one way to come to the Father, and that's through faith in Jesus Christ. It's the only way. And then lastly, the last... uh, Truth, we want to look at our word tonight is forgiving. Forgiving. Look at verse number 25. The Bible throws now to the son who stayed home. The elder son was in the field. And as he came and drew nigh to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. He said unto him, Thy brother is come, and thy father killed the fatty calf because he had received him safe and sound. And he was angry and would not go in. The father had forgiven, but the elder brother had not forgiven. At this point in the parable, the scribes and the Pharisees felt confident that they had escaped 
the judgment of God. They were not under, if you would, this comparison. Because he had centered all of his attention here on the publicans and sinners. Jesus continues the story. He introduces the elder brother, who really is a clear description here of the scribes and the Pharisees. The publicans and the sinners were guilty of obvious sins of the flesh. But the Pharisees were guilty of sins of the spirit. Their outward actions may have been blameless, but their inward attitudes were abominable. There was no excuse. You know, you think about these Pharisees. Notice the older brother's response. In verse 29, he says, These many years do I serve thee, neither transgressed at any time thy commandment. We see in him. Anger, pride, self-righteousness. I've never broken the commandment. I've always kept the law. Notice, thinking they've done all and kept all the commandments, what are the two commandments that Jesus introduces being the greatest? What did he say? Jesus said, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. As much as the older brother thought he had kept all the commandments, he had missed the two most important because he did not love God and he did not love his brother. He thought, boy, I've done it all. I've stayed home. I've kept the commandments. I've not transgressed the law. But you're not loving God and you're not loving your neighbor. How many times did Jesus present that to the Pharisees? You're not loving your neighbor. You're not being obedient. When you examine the sins of the older brother, you can easily understand why he pictures the scribes and the Pharisees. And think about his self-righteousness, his pride. The elder brother did not do God's will from the heart. He was unconcerned for his missing brother. I mean, think about the fact that his brother had come home, his response is, is, I'm not going in there. I'm not seeing him. I'm not celebrating with them. I'm not receiving him. I'm not forgiving him. He doesn't deserve any of that. Even though he knew it would make his father happy, the older brother didn't want his younger brother to come home. Why should he share his position with somebody who had wasted all of his own? Perhaps the most disturbing thing about the elder son was his fierce anger. The elder brother's dreams were all shattered because the father had forgiven the prodigal. Boy, it's sad when people have their dreams shattered because someone else has been forgiven. Because the attention's not on them, but it's on someone else. The elder brother was angry at his younger brother for getting all that attention for receiving the gifts. As far as the elder brother was concerned, the younger brother deserved none of it. But here's, here's the problem. The Pharisees had a religion of good works. They studied, they fasted, they prayed. They hoped to earn blessings. They hoped to merit eternal life. They came to Jesus. What can we do to earn eternal life? What can we do to merit, merit it? They knew little or nothing about God's grace. But it's not what they did, it's what they didn't do. 
It alienated them from God. When they saw Jesus receiving and forgiving irreligious people, they rebelled against it. And even more, they failed to see that they themselves also needed the Savior, that they needed Him too. You know, if we're out of fellowship with God, we cannot be in fellowship with our brothers and sisters. And if we're out of fellowship with our brothers and sisters, we cannot be in fellowship with God. God's pretty clear about that, isn't He? Boy, if you're married tonight, boy, we understand if we're not in fellowship with our spouse the way that we should. The Bible says our prayers are hindered. So we understand that the connection between God and the family of God is very strong, isn't it? Boy, that's why it's so important that we're in fellowship with God's family and we're in fellowship with God. And by the way, one's not replaceable and one is not more important than the other when it comes to the family. If we harbor an unforgiving attitude towards others, we cannot be in communion with God. The Bible tells us that in 1 John 4. When they show true repentance, the Bible says we're supposed to forgive those who sin. We should seek to restore them in grace and Humility, the Spirit of God is always restorative, isn't it? He wants to restore. Everybody in this chapter experienced joy except the older brother. It's a sad finish, close to the chapter. Everybody experienced joy except him. The shepherd, the woman, the friends, they all experienced the joy of finding the younger son, experienced the joy of returning, being received by a gracious father. The father experienced joy by receiving the son back But the elder brother would not forgive, so he had no joy. He could have repented, he could have attended the feast, but he refused, he stayed outside, and he suffered for it. Many times we too can be guilty of talking loudly about the sins of others, but blind to our own sins, saying, we'll never forgive. Truth is, if we make the statement, I will never forgive, we better not sin ourselves. Don't stand outside. Come in and enjoy the feast. That's where we're meant to be, right? Be back in service. We look at lost and found, and I'm glad tonight that though I was lost, I've been found. How about you tonight? And uh, I hope that that encourages us to the employment of finding more because that's what Jesus wants to do. And by the way, if Jesus is within you, his spirit is within you, that's what he wants to do what he's pushing you, plotting to do. If you're fighting against that, you're doing your will, not his. You're not going to have happiness and peace, and you're going to find it hard to forgive people, let alone forgive yourself. Truth is, tonight, we've got a loving, merciful, caring Father, and I'm glad that he runs to us. How about you tonight? If God has used this ministry in any way to be a blessing to you, please take a moment to send us an email to info at opendoornj.org. Also, if you would like to support this ministry financially, you can do so online at opendoornj.org. Thanks for tuning in.